Uh, we started last week in the book of Acts, and we're going to be back there today as we walk um, or walking through the book of Acts. Uh, the church on mission um, all the way up until Palm Sunday, and we're glad that you're here. If you're here today and today is your first time, it's a good time to be here. We, we started last week in the book of Acts, and we will continue on. Um, but we, we sort of went back and looked at where we are in, in history, and we know that this is the early days of the church. Uh, the book of Acts written by Luke, um, sort of a second part of his, um, of the gospel itself, the book of Luke. This is sort of the, the, the addition, the add-on when he begins to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church and the growth of the church. Um, and we saw last week where that the believers were entrusted with the responsibility to not only go, but to tell. Um, and that same responsibility that was given to them then is also the same responsibility that we have today, Don. There are no exceptions to that. Jesus told them that when the Holy Spirit came that they would become witnesses. And because of their faithfulness then as well as others since that time, that message of the gospel has made it all the way to here we are today. And let me say this. Only if we were faithful. Only if we are faithful will the gospel make it into the next generation. It puts a lot of responsibility on us as believers. This gathering that we do on Sunday morning is worthless if we don't take it outside the walls of this church. We have a great responsibility that's been placed upon us. We also talked about last week the devotions that we found in the lives of the early believers. And we, um, we mentioned what they were, that it wasn't just what they believed or what they said that made the difference, but it was also how they lived. And because of how they lived and the message that they shared and the mission that they were on, the Bible says that the early church grew, and it grew exponentially. The Lord added to the numbers daily those that were being saved. And can I put you on the spot for the second? And just let me ask you this question. This next year, whose life is going to be impacted because of the gospel that you share? This next year, whose life is going to be impacted because of the gospel that you don't just share, but that you live? Think about that for a second. I mean, does your Christian walk, does it exist by basically what happens here on a Sunday morning? Or are you taking it out into the highways and the byways of of life. This is what we know that Christianity did not, did not um, expand, it did not grow because of the power of a, of a military uh, basis. It did, not, it did not grow because of their influence, but the strength of Christianity was on the message and the mission, but also in the lives of those early believers who through the power of the Holy Spirit would change the world. And one of those men we're going to look at today, his name was Stephen. And Stephen lived by a principle, and this attitude was one that would not only help hold the church together when it was facing some difficult times, um, but it was one that all of us need to practice. All of us need to practice. And the principle that we're going to talk about that Stephen lived by today is it's, it's not about me. Would you say that with me? It's not about me. Now, that's really hard, isn't it? Because for some of us, it is all about us. But it's not about me. That was a principle that Stephen himself lived by. You know, it's, it's just not about me. And with that being said, I want you to turn over to the book of Acts in the New Testament. 
And we're going to look at, at chapter 6 and 7 today as we continue on in our time of, of looking at what God's Word has to say and how we can be encouraged today. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. And we'll make our way through this uh, very quickly today. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontentment. Can you believe that? The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. I have never, ever known for there to be a conflict in the church. You talk about a racial tension to start off with. Here were Jews that were raised inside of a Greek culture. Um, and when they became believers, they didn't leave that Greek culture behind. They can still continue to practice the cultures and the customs and the language of their Greekness. Yet they were Jews. They were now believers. And on the other hand, you had the Hebrew believers. And there's this conflict because the, the, uh, the Greek-speaking believers believed that they were being discriminated against because of who they were and where they had come from. The feelings weren't the problem. I mean, we've all felt like that before, probably at some point. You know, we've been slighted. Somebody's hurt our feelings. Something didn't go the way we... And that's not... The, feeling that way is not the problem, but it was how they went about handling the problem, Nathan, that became a problem. Because they didn't take it to the apostles, but they talked amongst themselves. And the Bible says that there was grumblings, rumblings, and there was discontentment. And how they chose to handle what was going on was a detriment to the church, to the fellowship, to the health and the well-being of, that, of that, that family. And some of us may think, well, you know, that's not really that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. Because anytime that happens, it's not only dangerous, but it's divisive. And there's nothing more that the devil likes is a, is a, is a situation like this that all of a sudden he can be put up front and... and, and uh, and on the platform. See, Satan loves distrust and he loves discontentment. You write this down someplace if you don't have it. I thought about this this week and I wrote this down. It isn't persecution that kills the church, but it's grumbling and complaining that rots the floor joists that leads to its collapse. I'll say that for you again. It isn't persecution that kills the church, but it's grumbling and complaining that rots the floor joists that leads to its collapse. Maybe you've experienced a, something like that in the past. You know, I, I heard, I hear stories all the time, but when I, you're going to laugh. You're going to think it's funny, but it's, it is what it is. A church split over a woman. She brought a congealed jello salad to, to, a, to a fellowship, and Mark it had Cool Whip on it instead of real whipping cream. <laughs> Go figure. Or the situation, and I, this goes all the way back to the 1800s. It's a story that's been told for years and years. A pastor that would come in, and, and uh, he had a hat, and he would put it down on the front bench. They had benches. They didn't have chairs. That's another thing they fight over these days is the difference between benches and chairs and pews and all that stuff. Don't ask me that question. It really doesn't matter to me. Sit on the floor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but the pastor would come in and he would put his hat down. So this, this leader in the church made a decision that he was going to put a peg up on the wall. So when he walked in, he had a place to put his hat. Well, Steve, what in the world do you think happens? There were some guys that got their feelings hurt because they said, well, why has nobody ever put a peg up for me? 
So it caused this division, and there was a church split. Then you had Peg Church and Anti-Peg Church. <laughs> and we call ourselves Christians. And we laugh. We laugh. But it's not funny, is it? But it's detrimental. We have to realize that when we act this way, especially when we judge the motives of others, we become a tool of the devil himself, and he loves that publicity. Talking about church conflict, write down these two things. You may think, well, that's pretty silly, but I want you to think about these two things in reference to church conflict and potential conflict within the church. Number one, make it a priority to give others the benefit of the doubt. Listen, if you want to be a part of a, a solution, always give people the benefit of the doubt. How many times do we go into a, a situation thinking, always thinking the worst? Well, you know, they didn't, do, they didn't even look at me. Well, they never even saw you. You know, there's always the expectation of the way we think things should be, and then there's the reality of where things are. And in between the expectation and the reality of where things are, there's some space that's in there, and we've got to make a decision what we're going to choose to believe. We either choose to believe the worst, or we choose to believe the best. And if you want to deal with the issue of church confidence, listen, don't judge the motives of others. Always choose to believe the best. Amen? Out of the mouth of babes, <laughs> I will always remember Meredith and I being on tour years and years ago, um, and I'll always remember the story. It was, it was uh, the usual practice that when we went into a, an area and we had kids that were performing, at the end of the performance, we would have to break down, and in those days, we stayed in the homes of people who, who went to church. And so we would do a performance at a church or a place, and then we would be housed in, these, in, these, uh, in the homes of people who, who were church members. And I'll always remember, I remember this one time we were breaking down, and it took us about 30 minutes. But in the midst of that 30 minutes, I noticed that there was a commotion that was near the front, and there was a senior adult lady. And, buddy, she was giving the pastor the right hand of Christian fellowship. When I mean she was laying him up and down and all around and the guy that was with me that was running the sound, and Meredith knows this story very well, he looked at me and he says, I bet you God's going to make us stay with that old bitty tonight. <laughs> he did. And the next morning we would always assemble. We would always assemble to, to, to share and to give a testimony of what God was doing and what, we, you know, what was happening in the, just sort of the details of the next day. And um, the next morning as we were sharing that devotion, tears are just flowing down his face. And I said, man, what's, what's going on, Rog? And he said, I was wrong. I was wrong. I said, what do you mean you were wrong? He goes, I didn't have a clue. He said, I thought she was a bitter, angry, nasty woman. But she wasn't. He said, you know, we got there, and the only thing that she was upset about, she was upset about her roast burning in the oven. And he said the reason that she was upset was because she felt like it was the last time she would be able to host somebody in her home because she had a brain tumor, and she didn't have long to live. And he said, I was wrong. 
And how many times do we judge the motives of others and we think we know, but we just don't know? Write this down. When there's an issue, go to him instead of them. Go to him instead of them. Think about how much confusion could be avoided if we, uh, if we went and took our issues to the Lord and consulted him first and his word. Could you imagine how many issues could be handled if we were to go to him first instead of them? So how did the church leadership deal with this issue, this conflict, this tension that had developed between the Greek-speaking believers and the Hebrew-speaking believers? Look at what it says in verse 2. So the twelve, the apostles, called a meeting of the believers and they said, Okay, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom and we'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word and everyone liked this idea. And some people may come to the conclusion, you know, the apostles just didn't want to deal with that anymore. But that's not the truth because who in the world do you think had been doing it this whole time? The apostles had, had been. But the numbers of, of, of believers had grown to the point that they couldn't service that many believers. There was no way that they could take care of all those issues that were arising. And so they were the ones that carried out the ministry to begin with. But because of all these numbers, and the numbers were being added to the church, the load had become over. Well, it, it, it wasn't about the distribution of food at all. But it was the fact that their time could be best spent studying the Word so they could teach the Word and, and be in prayer. But to do this, they would have to rely and have to allow some other people to take leadership and responsibility. It would have to be some shared leadership that would happen. And so they called this meeting and they talked about it and what was happening. And the decision was made that they would choose some other guys to be among the group that were respected and those who walked with God. And look at what happened in verse 5. It says, they chose the following, Stephen... Philip and some other guys. You know, the funny thing about those other guys is every one of those are Greek names. Every one of those men that they chose were of Greek descent. Who was the ones that were complaining? Those who were of Greek descent. I think that's pretty much an interesting. Here's the background of those that have been grumbling, and so they're going to have a direct connection to them. And after these seven guys were chosen, it says in verse 6, these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And it said as a result of the shared leadership and the decision that was made, God's message continued to spread, and the numbers of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. Let me say this, just because you're religious doesn't mean you're a Christ follower. You got some Jewish priest that one time ridiculed and led the charge for the persecution of Jesus, and here they are, they're becoming believers. Do you think they were becoming believers because some, someone had convinced them that they were wrong? I don't think so. I think that those Jewish priests that were walking through and obeying the law recognized that there was something that there was missing because those believers were different. You know, when people see you out and amongst the people, that they see you as being different. You know, when you're out in the highways and the byways of life, when you're in, even in moments when you're being pinched and it's difficult and there's tension, do people see a difference in you? 
these are the guys that that um, would have these are the guys that would have been the ones leading the charge for Jesus to be crucified. I mean, was it Peter's sermon that preached when he defended the resurrection that caused him to to uh, to change? It might have been, but I don't think so. But I think it goes back to watching those who are Christ followers in their in their lives. And one of those guys just happened to be Stephen, who was a man full of God's grace and power, and he performed amazing miracles and signs amongst the people. And look at what Luke says in verse 9. But one day, one day some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. So here's some guys, some, some religious people that are down here from the local synagogue, and all of a sudden they get Stephen and they corner him, and they begin to question and debate with him. And they quickly realized that Stephen was not, I mean, this wasn't the normal guy. I mean, he wasn't really the guy that you really wanted to mess with. I mean, he knew what he was talking about. And because they couldn't defeat him and because they couldn't out-debate him, what they did is they hired some witnesses to lie about Stephen. And they falsely accused him. And Stephen stood up and he spoke as a response to the questions and the accusations. And his response to the lies happens to be one of the longest sermons that we find in the book of Acts. And we find that sermon in chapter 7. And I'm not going to read all of it. But basically what he does is he makes two points. Number one, Israel, you've continually refuted the messages that God has sent to you through the prophets. In other words, here you are, you guys. Every time that God has sent to you a message, you've just ignored it. And secondly, the law that you are holding on to so tightly does not give you life. It does not save you, nor does it change the new heart that you so desperately need. And to end, off, to end this sermon, this is what he says in chapter 7, verse 51. You stubborn people. Some of your translations say stiff-necked. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? See, that's what your ancestors did, and so do you. That's not something you think that they really wanted to hear. Do you think? I don't think so. They didn't want to hear that. Stephen said, listen, you're resistant to the truth, and you're just like your mama. You're just like your daddy. And he said in verse 15, name one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones that predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed, by the way, and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Man, talk about getting up in somebody's business. But how did they receive the message that Stephen spoke to them? It said the Jewish leaders were infuriated with his accusations. And they shook their fist at him in, in rage. Some of your translations may say the gnashing of teeth. Ever done that before? You ever been so mad you just grit your teeth? But Stephen, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into the heavens and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus, underline that there, because I'm going to come back and hit on this in a second. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing. There it is, again. In the place of honor at God's right hand. See, in the Old Testament, it was the priest that had access to God um, in the Holy of Holies one time a year to offer a sacrifice. But because of the sacrifice that Jesus paid, 
The veil in the temple was rent, and now we have access to the Father. I don't have to, you don't have to go through anybody. You have direct access. And here's Stephen. He's not a priest. He's not an apostle. He's a regular guy that's chosen to serve, having direct access to God's presence. In the Old Testament, it was the priest that had the special privileges and access to God. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, we all have direct access to God. In addition, in the Old Testament, it was the priest that had the responsibility of taking care of the poor and the widows. But now all of us have that responsibility. So you think I'm special? I'm not special. I'm just like you and you're just like me. I'm better than some of you, but. <laughs> and some of you I'm not as good as. Verse 57, it said they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began stoning him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named, remember, same guy, same guy. And that day, Saul, who would later have his own personal encounter with the Lord, stood there as Stephen was being martyred and stoned for his faith. And it says that as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell upon his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Can I give you just a few things about Stephen's life that I think is important? Because the church on mission will serve as Stephen served. Write this down. Service is central to the life of a believer. Service is central to the life of a believer. Here's Stephen being introduced as a servant. He had a job of waiting on widows. But we see in chapter 7, this guy was also a gifted preacher. When he was chosen to serve, he didn't say, look, I'm overqualified, or that's not my gift, or I, I just don't have time, or it's not my passion. He just, he had the attitude, it's not about me. And he says, okay, if guys, if that's how I can serve the body, I'm in. Count me in. Tell me what I need to do. If that's the best way that I can be of service, I'm in, I'll just, I'll do it. And his attitude and heart, even though we may not have a, uh, may not can see it, was, had a huge impact on the early church. Because not only did the position that he filled help, help keep uh, and preserve the unity and the unity that was being threatened, but it also led to some people who were great antagonists of the church and eventually would lead, we believe, to the conversion of Paul because he stood there and he saw it. He saw it. Maybe that's why one theologian said this, love on display is one of the greatest apologetics that the church has. That word apologetic means defense of the faith. In other words, it's not what we say, but it's how we live that makes the difference. Man, there's some of us that, I tell you what, there's some people that I know that talk a good talk, but they sure don't walk a good walk. That's an oh me for every one of us, isn't it? It's not in the amount of information that we happen to know, but it's the changing of a heart that leads to a different lifestyle. And you ask me why serving others is so important, because it's love God's love on display. And this attitude of service is a characteristic that every one of us as believers should be known for. And our attitudes as servants is God's love on display to the world around us. You know, I, I love this 
church family. And I love the testimonies that I hear about you from time to time and what happens, things that I don't even know about. They don't happen because somebody tells you to do it. They don't happen because there's some publicity that goes on about it. You just do it. It wasn't that long ago I was out in public and I was, I was at a house uh, assisting somebody and somebody found out where I went to church and they said, that was your church. And I said, what do you mean your, my church? Your church is the one that helped us. Then I said, what do you mean that my church is the one that helped you? They said, well, when we moved here, it was your church, your church family that, that helped us find a place to stay. It was your church that helped, that, that helped people inside the church that helped get us things to put inside of that house so that we could call it a home. And it was your church that, that had that food bank down there that, that, that fed us when we didn't, have a, we didn't have anything to eat. You need to know your church make a difference in our lives. And I thought, man, isn't that what the church is? That's the church. Every time we serve, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And how many times, how many times have you blessed others by serving them? Because those acts of service of love, they never go unnoticed. People are always watching. There was a, there was a, uh, a survey that was done where they came up with some statistics about people that visit church. And they said this. 70% of the people that visit your church for the first time will make a decision where they'll come back within the first seven minutes. Think about that. Within the first seven minutes, they arrive on campus, they will make a decision whether or not they'll ever come back. That's before music is ever played. That's before anything is ever preached. They've already made a decision whether or not they'll stay, they'll come back, and they'll return. And so you have a lot, a lot of that has to do with, with being served. See, the message is preached while people are arriving on campus. They're, they're preached as people are getting out of their cars. They're preached as they're checking their children into the children's environments. The message is preached when they're ge- greeted as they enter the worship center. The message is preached when they're walking out, sitting outside, getting a cup of coffee, and looking for somebody to engage them in a conversation. The sermon is preached beyond the walls before the food is ever served, people. How we serve is one of the ways that the church expresses God's love and how much he cares for us, and that's important. The heart of service is central to the life of the disciple and the Christ follower. In the 4th century, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Julian in a very famous letter. Um, He was a persecutor of believers. This is what he wrote down as he was penned a letter to a friend. He said, the Christian faith has has specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their poor but also for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should Render them. The hearts of people are stirred when people serve. We're called to a life of service. There are no exceptions. The church on mission will serve. Some people say, well, I just don't know where to serve. Write these things down. Here's three places to look. Number one, a place that you're skilled or you have expertise in. A place that you're passionate about. The third place is a place there's a need. I'll say those for you again just so you don't miss them. Places that you can serve, this could be a place that you're skilled or you've got some kind of an expertise. 
a place that you're passionate about, you love to do, or a place where there's a need. See, that was the area that Stephen, the gap that he filled. We think about the need in the early church and the distribution of, of food. I would probably say that the distribution of food was not a passionate a passionate thing that Stephen wanted to be able to carry out, but it was a need, and Stephen said, I'm in. I mean, when I think about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, I don't think he just sat around thinking, I can't wait to wash the disciples' feet again. But he did it, and he did it because it, was, it needed to be done, and he knew it would set an example. How many of us serve because we enjoy it, or do we serve because there's an opportunity? I love to walk in this building. See, you think... You, you think everything happens, and it maybe just happens within a small... There's people doing things all over, whether it's somebody coming in to pray over the seats on Sunday morning or people gathering in a room to spend time praying over the services. Or maybe it's the people that are, that are here early to, to, to work through sound and music or those that are serving or greeting or those getting ready and all the things that go on within children's environments. There are so many things that happen. So many things that happen. But whenever we serve, we're being the hands and feet of Jesus. Another lesson is this. We can learn the servant must prioritize the word of God. We talked about the word of God, the apostles teaching. They must be devoted to that. We're back here again. Stephen was devoted to the word of God. There's lots of things that we can fill our lives up with. Lots of things. But God's word must be a priority. It wasn't the fact that the distribution of food wasn't important. It was. But the apostles knew the importance of God's word in spiritual Growth. I think that one of the things I'm trying to learn because there's a lot of things that I can do, but just because I can do it doesn't necessarily mean that I need to be the one to do it. Does that make sense? Jennifer shaking her head. This is a lady that's coming out of just working for the Southeast and making sure that all the, the boxes that we put together for Samaritan's Purse get to where they, they're supposed to go. And there's probably a lot of things that Jennifer says as she's sitting in that warehouse with probably a million square feet with all those boxes. And she's probably thinking, well, this needs to be done, and this needs to be done, and this needs to be done, and I can do this, this, this. And, but she says, if I do that, I can't do this. And this is the greatest benefit for right now for where I am. Doesn't mean that we can't serve the church body in multiple ways. But my study time, my study time, my preparation time, our staff's preparation time, our time in word, our time in prayer is the best way that we can serve our church family. But just because I don't, I like to do them doesn't mean that they're in the best interest of me or the church family or my personal family. Does that make sense? Stephen said, listen, I understand. He said, I'm going to fill the gap because I know what's important. When Stephen preached in chapter 7, where in the world do you think his knowledge and wisdom to preach came from? It came from his personal time in the Word as well as the teaching that he received from the apostles that he set up underneath. And we see Stephen devoting himself to the Word in two ways. Number one, he freed up the apostles so they could study and preach the Word and pray. Secondly, he prioritized his own study of the Word. It's important that you learn God's Word. Because somewhere along the way, I'm not going to be there to answer a question that you've got to answer. Here you're going to be going about your business and somebody going to, is going to ask you a question. You're not going to go, oh, I just got to dial Pastor Sid or I got to dial Pastor Brian or I got to dial Pastor Marin. I got, I got to dial Miss Sheila to find out what's going on. may not be there. 
It was Peter that said, you must always be prepared to give an answer to the hope that lies within you. That's why we study God's word, to spend time in God's word. And we hide it in our hearts. I don't know if I can say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. You can't regurgitate what you haven't swallowed. Some of y'all understand that. Some of y'all still trying to figure out what I just said. You can't regurgitate what you haven't swallowed. It's impossible. You can't recall what you've not learned. You can't take out what hasn't been put in. And we as servants must prioritize the word of God. Write this down, and I love this. God uses ordinary people to do the extraordinary. Here's God would use the life of Stephen to impact the lives of tremendous amounts of people, with Saul being one of those. Some of the most powerful witnesses for the gospel that I have ever known have not been pastors. They've not been teachers. Some of them didn't even grow up in Christian homes. They didn't go to a Bible college or a seminary. They didn't hold a prominent position in the church. But they were ordinary people that did extraordinary things because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lied within them. I'll always remember Big John. Big John. Big John came to know the Lord when he was in his late 40s. He was a barroom brawler. He was a mean-looking cuss. I mean, he'd send chills up his spine just to look at him because he was so ugly looking. Had a big old knot on the top of his head from a barroom brawl that he had been in. But that man went from a barroom brawler to accepting Christ and would weep at the name of Jesus because he recognized what Christ had done for him. And I remember having John and Norma drive down and spend some time with me one time, and we sat on the floor with a group of teenagers, and here's old big John. He was in his 60s by that time. And uh, he sat on the floor with us and talked to teenagers about the importance of trusting Jesus and just wept. He just wept. He would never... I mean, he'd just known the Lord for a few years. He wasn't a leader in the church. He was just an ordinary man doing extraordinary things because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because his heart had been changed. He wasn't a preacher, but let me tell you something. He preached a loud sermon because of the life that he lived. You may not understand this, but the most powerful witness in this church family is not me, but it's you. Not me. See, people expect that of me. I'm supposed to be the professional Christian. Don't you know that? I'm not supposed to give people the finger when they pull out in front of me. I don't do that anyway, but I'm the one that's supposed to be nice when, when and everybody else wants to, you know. But what about you? How do you act? How do you live? I mean, how is God using you for his kingdom? Because every day, every one of us can be used by God for his glory if we allow it. See, because of culture, it's easy for us to think as a, in reference to a church and a group of people that we, here we are, we gather and we listen to the guy speak and we listen to some good music. And, and when the real church, when the power of the church isn't what happens here on Sunday morning, it what happens out there during the week. See, that's where the real power is. 
not as we're gathered. But the great power happens when you're sent. Out this side, this building, ordinary people living or extraordinary lives through the power of the Holy Spirit as they share and as they serve. And lastly, write this down. Being a servant requires sacrifice. Being a servant requires sacrifice. Here is Stephen. He was obedient to the end. I mean, some of us, we're, we struggle with this, don't we? Because here's a guy who was faithful and he lost his life. And you're asking me, you tell me, how can God be God and he allows something like this to happen? I wish I could explain it, but I can't. I can't explain that. Why did God allow it to happen? I don't know. But what I do know, what I do know is what Acts 758 tells us. It tells us that that when Stephen was being stoned, it said that they took and they laid their clothes, their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. And here is Saul watching everything going down. And he witnessed the anger. He witnessed the bitterness. He witnessed the rage of every person that day. And he saw every stone that was thrown. And he saw every person who threw a stone. He heard the pleas of forgiveness that Stephen offered and that he prayed that day while those people were persecuting him. Hmm. And yet that day, what, what Stephen saw or what Saul saw was the glory of God in the midst of that situation. Write this down, and I thought about this this past week, and I wrote it and I pinned it down. I think this makes a lot of sense, and maybe you can grasp. I think this is really, you want something deep? I think this is pretty deep, okay? The blood of Stephen, it was the blood of Stephen that watered the seed of Saul's faith. It was the blood of Stephen that watered the seed of Saul's faith. One of the most effective and, and significant contributions to God's kingdom came as a result of Stephen's sacrifice that day. Hmm. Because Paul wasn't saved because he saw Stephen delivered that day. But we can link Saul's conversion to him seeing Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit. And testifying to God's glory in the midst of pain. See, the sermons we preach in the moments of pain are louder than any sermon that we will ever preach in the midst of a blessing. The sermons that we preach in the, in the moments of pain are louder than any sermon that we will ever, we will ever preach in those in the midst of pain or in the midst of blessing. I don't wish persecution or pain on anybody. I don't. But what I do know is in those times of darkness, in those times of desperation, in those times of suffering, God takes our testimony and does huge things. Take Mike Tucker for a second. You and I were in a conversation the other day. Mike said, I don't know if I can take any more. We started reliving his life and things that had happened in his, in his family and his life. And we went back to the major accident that every one of his family members should have lost their lives. Mike, how long were you in a, a halo? How many months? It was a long time. And then here Mike is, walks through a time where his reputation is attacked, his integrity is intact, it was drugged through the mud, 
He was falsely accused. And as of late, he's been walking through the battles of cancer. And yet every one of those times, God has been faithful because because of those struggles and those moments of darkness that he and his family has walked through, Mike's had the opportunity of walking through that with other people that have called to say, Mike, man, tell me what's going on because I see you and I see your life and it just doesn't make sense. How are you hanging in there? Tell me how you're surviving in the midst of all of this. Mike's testimony has been amplified. And he's been faithful through the struggles. And each time, every incident has opened a door for conversations with other people who were searching. And you know what Mike's attitude has been every time? It's not about me. It's not about me. I mean, I think about my own life, whether it was being in a lawnmower accident when I was four telling me I'd never walk again, or I think about having a sister who was born with Down syndrome, I think about the 12 years at Meredith and I walked through infertility. And as painful as every one of those situations where I look back and I see how God has used every one of those instances to prepare us to be able to share with other people that have gone through something that's been similar. I didn't like it. I don't want to walk through it again. But I see how God has used the pain and the heartache And that season to speak into the lives of others about the faithfulness of God. Not to illuminate our struggle, but to highlight God's faithfulness. See, it's really about directing people's attentions towards Jesus, isn't it? Here's the question. What's it all about for you? I'm going to let that sink in just for a second. When you think about your relationship with God, what's it all about for you? I mean, how many people attend church because of what's in it for them? Instead of using the gifts that they have to serve and to illuminate God's love, we become consumers. And all of a sudden, we carry the attitude, what's in it for me? It's all about me. One guy said you can realize there's a struggle when all of a sudden we become easily offended when our efforts aren't recognized or celebrated. In other words, you become offended when somebody doesn't highlight your presence or your contribution. That's a pretty good indicator, man. It's all about you. That's the bottom line. Where did Stephen's attitude of selflessness come from? Where did his life of it's all about you come from? Man, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this. Back in 7, Stephen's closing out his sermon. To the religious leaders, those that had been filled with rage, remember what it says and look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 55, and I love this, don't miss this, please don't miss it. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus, what? Standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Stephen looks up into the heavens and he sees Jesus standing. The one with the nail-pierced hands, the one who had given his life for him. He sees Jesus standing. The one who died for Stephen, the one who died for the church, he sees him standing. And when Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them, think of another time that you heard that. When Jesus was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they 
do. And Stephen looking, recognizing the price that Christ had paid. And he said, likewise, I should do for others. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand. I can't find another instance in the scripture where Jesus stood at the right hand. He always sat at the right hand. He saw what was going on. And he stood. I see you. I see you. He stood because he saw the suffering. He knew the pain. He knew what he'd walked through. Earth had condemned him. Heaven commended him. Earth had rejected him. But heaven received him. And here's Stephen, and Jesus is pointing, and he says, I see you. I see you. And Stephen said, I'd rather have his blessing and affirmation than anything else this world can offer. And here's Stephen looking up, and he's got Jesus looking down. And he knew it was going to be okay. That even though it may seem from the outside that God was oblivious to what was going on, that that he wasn't present. Here's God. He must be planning for a vacation or playing on his cell phone. But that wasn't what was happening. Stephen didn't recognize it, but watching him die was one that would be the world's greatest evangelist. And this story is a reminder for that our availability, whether good times or times of difficulty, God can use it for his kingdom expansion. The point to which we grasp God's love and victory is the point to which we will be able to endure suffering well. Let me say that again. The point to which we understand and grasp God's love and his victory is the point to which we will be able to, under, to endure suffering well. When I come to the place of recognizing God's love for me, when I recognize that, that he wouldn't do anything to hurt me, but his love is, is deep. It's deep. That God always has my best interests in mind, whatever situation it may be. It's a whole lot easier to endure those difficult times that we may face. I was in a conversation with somebody the other day, and I said, they were talking to me about a struggle, and the struggle's real. And I said to him, do you believe that God, is, that God loves you? And they said, yep. I said, do you believe that God has your best interests in mind? They said, yep. I said, um, 
do you believe that God is in control? And they said, yep. I said, everything that you believe is being put to the test right now. Everything. You know what the name Stephen means in Greek? It means crown. Crown. A crown or wreath that's, that's given to a, a one who overcomes. You know, they put the crown on the, the Olympic winner, the one who overcomes the opposition or the competition. And yet here is Stephen who would overcome the world and receive a crown of life because he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And God would use his death to accomplish more than he ever would ever accomplish in his life. Simply put, if we want to overcome the world, serve. Serve. Come to the place that you realize and declare that this world isn't about me. See, some of you are in a situation, you're struggling with obedience right now. What are you going to do? Obedience is always costly. It always requires death. I was having lunch with a guy the other day. You guys are going to think this is funny. I do some unconventional things from time to time. So I take this guy out, and we're having lunch. And I said, okay, man, look, what I want you to do, I want you to get anything you want on this, this menu. We were at Steakhouse. It was to my benefit that I took him there. So we're at this steakhouse, and we're sitting down. He's looking at me, and I said, yeah, man, get anything you want. He's like, anything I want? I said, yeah, because they say that before a, a, a person is executed, they get to choose what they want, the best thing on the menu. <laughs> and so since death is really close to you, I want you to get whatever you want on the menus, okay? So he's like looking at me, and I said, let, let, me, let me explain to myself. All these things that we're talking about, I can solve every one of your problems, but it's going to require death. It's going to require you giving of your life. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require obedience. God never promised that when we serve, it would be easy or comfortable. But in those moments of challenge, we just have to be, asked, be able to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it? To follow him, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and declare his worth to say, Jesus, you're worth it. When we serve, there's always going to be a cost. Because it's not about me. It's about him. Jesus, what do you want me to do? If that's the case, I'm in. I mean, how many of us here today can actually say, Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, it's all about you? I mean, how many of us sitting here today without a shadow of a doubt can stand up here and say, I'm going to tell you what, my life is a testimony of Jesus, it's all about you. That's pretty intimidating, isn't it? But how many of us could say that? Jesus, is, it's all about you, or is it? Or is it? Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Jesus, wherever you want me to serve, I'll serve. Jesus, however you want me to suffer, I'll suffer because it's all about you. Can I say that today? Jesus, it's all about you. God, I'll serve. Whatever you want me to do, I'm available. But then again, you may be here and you may be honest and you say, no, it's not really about him, but it's really about me and, and I need you to change my heart. I can't change your heart.
No word that I say can change your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. Only Jesus can change your heart. Heritage Community Church cannot change your heart. Going to another Bible study cannot change your heart. Being actively involved in Beyond the Walls or any other ministry cannot change your heart. That's only a work of the Holy Spirit. Has your heart ever been changed? Picture Jesus today, the resurrected Lamb of God, not sitting but standing. And he is pointing, saying, he's mine. She's mine. Man, I would love for us to be able to speak the words of Paul, what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he said he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and raised, who was raised for them. See, the church that is on mission will have a bunch of people that will be filled with people like Stephen's. That are servants. Is it about you? Or is it about him? Maybe you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It can't be about him because it's all about you. What is it that keeps you from making the most important decision? I'll tell you what it is. It's pride. Jesus, I don't need you. I got me. If you don't know him, even today, you could make a decision right there where you are to humble yourself and to pray and say, Jesus, I just, man, my life's a mess. I need you. Will you save me? I recognize what Christ did, that he died on the cross for my sins. I want to receive him and I want to trust him. And if that's the type of decision that you're at and Listen, I would love to know that. I'd love to, for us to be able to have a conversation about that decision. You can write it on one of those cards. You can put it in one of those boxes as you leave them. I promise you we'll contact you and we'll set up a meeting, a time to sit down. Or even today, maybe you're here and you, you just say, man, Pastor Sid, I, I, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus today. For those of us that are Christ followers, that are professing believers, Who's it really about? I think if we're all honest, I think there are those moments and times when we have to say it's all about me. May we be willing to confess those times and say, Jesus, forgive me and help me to realize it's really all about you. Would you pray with me this morning? I cannot have not been able to get that out of my mind about Jesus standing. And here is Stephen looking up and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. How powerful of an analogy that is. See, Stephen, I see you. I see the suffering. And I've been there. It's going to be okay. Because I got it. For those of us in this building that may be walking through difficult times today, help us to be encouraged by this and help us to, as we gaze and as we, and as we pray, Father, would you help us envision Christ standing 
and be encouraged and help us not to walk through this battle alone, but help us to, to speak to others who will surround us in these times of difficulty so that we can be encouraged and our hands be lifted high in those times that we feel like we can't take another step. For those of us here that are Christ followers that are, that are saying, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to serve. May we find that place of expertise or skill or passion or just ask ourselves, what is it that needs to be done? And may we serve not only inside but outside because that is a picture of the love of Christ because we are the hands and feet of Christ. For the person that doesn't know Jesus today, even this morning, would they solidify that decision to say, Jesus, today, I want to accept you. And may they let us know so that we can celebrate this decision. Father, I pray for us as a body, as a church family, that you would continue to be at work. Help us to fight against those moments of, 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 uh, of conflict that seems to uh, uh, happen in every church body as there's growth. Help us to fight against that by recognizing um, that, that we should choose to believe the best. And if we got issues, to take it to you before we ever take it to anybody else. Help us to recognize the important role that we play in this community, that the greatest work that we have isn't what happens here, Father, but it happens outside the walls. Encourage us this week that as we go, that we will be an example and that we will show others what Jesus' love looks like. I pray now for our men's retreat. I pray for that, that gathering of men. I pray that every man in our family, in our church family, even others that we invite will come and be a part of that time as we focus and as we gather for spiritual growth. Thank you, Father, for, for being in this place today. For the word of God speaks, and it speaks loudly. Now may we obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.